Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll look into a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with the summit meeting between President Biden and Xi Jinping, at which the Chinese leader stressed that, for, quote, the most important bilateral relationship in the world, it is unrealistic for one side to remodel the other, and conflict and confrontation has unbearable consequences for both sides. Joining us to go beyond cliches into what the U.S. can do to reach out to the Chinese people, many of whom do not like their government or its leader, is Yacho Wang, Research Director for China, Hong Kong and Taiwan at Freedom House. Previously, she was the senior China researcher at Human Rights Watch and also worked on press freedom issues in China and other Asian countries for the Committee to Protect Journalists. We will discuss her article at the Los Angeles Times, Tough Talk from Biden at APEC Won't Move Xi Jinping. Here's what will. Then, with an outburst of schoolyard taunts and threats of violence in Congress from representatives and senators, we'll discuss the breakdown of decorum and what is behind it with Joanne Freeman, a professor of American history and of American studies at Yale University who specializes in the politics and political culture of the revolutionary and early national periods of American history. Her books include Alexander Hamilton, Writings, Affairs of Honor, National Politics in the New Republic, and The Field of Blood, Congressional Violence in Antebellum America. Then finally, we'll examine why Americans have an appetite for disinformation and how the press should handle increasingly hateful and fascistic threats coming from Trump. Joining us is Danigal Young, a professor of communication and political science at the University of Delaware. She is an award-winning scholar and teacher, a TED speaker, an improvisational comedian, and the author of Irony and Outrage, the Polarized Landscape of Rage, Fear, and Laughter in the United States. Her latest book just out is Wrong, How Media, Politics, and Identity Drive Our Appetite for Misinformation. And before we begin, Background Briefing's mission of building a reality-based community in post-truth America is taking on a new urgency now that we have a fundamentalist Christian theocrat in charge of the People's House, as Trump's insurrectionists, know-nothings, election deniers, and armed and angry cult followers threaten to take over the executive branch, having already captured the judiciary. We are in a fight between those who no longer believe in democracy and those who have to defend it or see it die please make a tax-deductible donation at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or at our foundation publictruthmedia.org so that we can continue to seek out facts and information to awaken America's silent majority before democracy is trumped by fascism, wrapped in the flag and carrying a Bible. And joining us now is Yacho Wang, who is Research Director for China, Hong Kong and Taiwan at Freedom House. Previously, she was the Senior China Researcher at Human Rights Watch and also worked on press freedom issues in China and other Asian countries for the Committee to Protect Journalists. And she has an article at the Los Angeles Times, Tough Talk from Biden at APEC Won't Move Xi Jinping, Here's What Will. Welcome to Background Briefing, Yacho Wang. Thank you for having me. Well, thanks for joining us. And President Biden and Xi Jinping met today in the Filoli estate, uh, about 30 miles south of San Francisco. And then they moved then to the summit in San Francisco, uh, where uh, Xi Jinping was undoubtedly saw 
protesters, well, for and against him with Chinese flags as, along with uh, other protest signs. So far, all we know about the meeting is the sort of, you know, boilerplate stuff she called the U.S.-China relationship the most important bilateral relationship in the world. And he said that he and Biden shoulder heavy responsibilities for the two peoples, for the world, and for history. For two large countries like China and the United States, turning their back on each other is not an option. It is unrealistic for one side to remodel the other, and conflict and confrontation has unbearable consequences for both sides. So is that sort of boilerplate, or is there something more to that? Uh, what do you think, well, Joe? Even, even when you're reading this to me, I just felt I've been, I've been hearing about this for so many times. Like, uh, Yeah, I think it's just cliche, and it really, you know, we have to say what actual like actions come out from both sides. And I have to say I have low expectations because they have said it the same thing many, many times. Then look at the China-U.S. relation in the past 10 years. Look at how China is actually, you know, carrying out all kinds of human rights abuses. And so I have low expectations. But I have to say that I'm very, like, um, excited to see the protests because I think they are more active than they were before, especially for Hong Kongers. Because of the, you know, they have been driven out of the Hong Kong because of the repression. So I saw a lot of activism. That's the good part. Right. Just to touch on your article at the Los Angeles Times, tough talk mm -hmm. from Biden at APEC won't move Xi Jinping. Here's what will. What will move him, and particularly to address the concerns that you just mentioned, human rights concerns? Well, I think there are definitely a few things the U.S. can do, and, you know, the U.S. is the world's uh, largest economy, and it absolutely has the economic leverage. The number one uh, is the uh, the the uh, the Uyghur Forced Labor Prevention Act, uh, which uh, bans or imports from uh, all pro uh, products uh, that are made in whole or in part from the Xinjiang region, uh, where crimes against humanity are happening where, you know, a million Uyghurs are being detained in uh, at re-education camps uh, unless companies can prove the products are not made with, uh, with forced labor, which is hard to prove that. The law was passed in 2021 and, uh, I mean, the law is very fact, uh, powerful in the sense that so much of the stuff are made in Xinjiang, 20% of the world cotton is made in Xinjiang you know, almost half of the polysilicon, which is a very important component uh, for a uh, solar panel, uh, are made in Xinjiang. So the law is powerful. However, the enforcement isn't that good. And research has shown that, you know, uh, products made in Xinjiang, in part or in whole, are still being imported into the U.S. because, you know, companies learn to obscure where their products are actually made. So I think this is number one. Uh, I think it can be pow uh, very powerful if it's, uh, you know, uh, rigorously uh, enforced. Then the second I would, you know, I mentioned in the article is the uh, uh, um, targeting uh, of uh, 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 human rights perpetrators who, uh, who, commit, who committed a transnational repression. Uh, I mean, we were, uh, the FBI, the DOJ have several, opened several cases against people who are in the U.S. who have harassed or intimidated Chinese uh, activists and Chinese dissidents. And this is something the U.S. government absolutely has the power to do. And also the U.S. government can, uh, 
you know, ban companies from exporting their technologies to aid the Chinese government uh, in its human rights abuses. So those are the things the U.S. you know absolutely has control over and can do, and those tools are powerful. So you're arguing that the U.S. should not fall for these cliches like constructive dialogue and win-win cooperation that come from the Chinese government, which is essentially, let's just get along together and talk about what we want to talk about, but let's not spoil things by bringing up uncomfortable subjects like human rights. Exactly. I mean, they always say win-win cooperation. The shared, I think Xi Jinping mentioned, you know, the, the shared... The shared future of humankind all oh, sounds great, right? Nobody would disagree with those words. But those are just the, the government's word salad that try to, you know, mask its, uh, uh, its, its, its fundamental resistance to cooperation. They want to say all those nice things. Um, then at the same time, they are doing the opposite. I mean, the climate is such a clear example. Xi Jinping has been saying all those, like, you know, great things about, oh, this climate is such an urgent issue, we should all work together because that's the only way to deal with this issue. At the same time, China is built, keep, continues to build a, a new coal power plant. You know, the new coal power, uh, coal power plant, it's building amounts to two thirds of the global construction. So if you're really committed to climate change, addressing climate change, then this stop building coal plants is such an obvious obvious action to take. But then, you know, they're not taking. Well, there's obviously economic problems back home for Xi Jinping. He's got 23% youth unemployment, particularly educated college kids who can't find work. He's going after entrepreneurs. People are trying to get their money out of the country. I'm not sure how successful they're being. But big multinational corporations and all the U.S. investors are starting to pull money out. So... Is he over here at APEC and meeting with Biden largely to repair the economic damage? In other words, is that the leverage that you're talking about that the United States needs to exercise? Yeah, that's what I'm talking about. I think Xi Jinping does want uh, to keep the business thing going. I mean, the COVID, the three-year-old, a three-year-long draconian COVID was very uh uh, zero COVID policy was very damaging to the economy. And, you know, as you mentioned, the high unemployment and, uh, you know, foreign business didn't, uh, don't feel confidence in the Chinese economy anymore. And so they are withdrawing. So I think this makes Xi Jinping nervous and uh, Biden should definitely um, uh, leverage that. And then we have to say, you know, the CCP is abusive, it's not democratic. Chinese people know that. But uh, for the past 40 years, the CCP has been telling Chinese people, you know, you don't have the freedom, you know, you don't have the democracy, but we can deliver economically. So but now they're, they can't de- deliver economically as they had been doing for the past four years. And that definitely made them make them nervous. So what do you know then about the attitudes of the Chinese people. Obviously, Xi Jinping has created the most ubiquitous surveillance state on the planet, and it's very difficult to get any sense of public opinion. And and he's also restricted U.S.-China scholars and academics uh, from visiting the country and finding out what's happening at the street level, if you will. Uh, My understanding is that Xi Jinping is not popular. He's sort of jokingly called Winnie the Pooh, and 
I don't know whether you could say there's a restiveness, but there's a amongst the educated and particularly on the entrepreneurial people, he's very unpopular. Is is that accurate? Yeah, I agree. I I think he's very unpopular. I mean, last year, uh, after three years of the zero COVID policy, you know, people went to street to protest across the country, and some people were calling for Xi Jinping to step down. And this is ha- this happened in a context context that is it is extremely dangerous to go protest. It is extraordinarily dangerous to call for Xi, the president, to step down, and people were still doing it. And it was a protest across the country and you know it, he was he's very unpopular uh i mean i think a few weeks ago the prim, the former premier li keqiang died and people were so many people went to you know pay tribute to mourn his death because he uh it was more it, it was less about you know this uh you know premier died it was more about people trying to express their displeasure displeasure with Xi Jinping by mourning a leader that it was different from Xi. Li Keqiang was a more, you know, uh, a, a leader who cared more about economic development, who was more friendly uh, to the people, cared about, uh, you know, the poor people's welfare. So I think there were a lot of indicators showing that people were very unhappy in the context that the country is extremely censored and extremely surveyed and that there's huge risk if you express discontent with the party, especially with the president. So is there a possibility that the yearning for freedom and democracy that's there in the in China, amongst particularly amongst its educated and then particularly amongst the young people that are are educated and can't get work and and you mentioned the way that they 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 mourned the recently deceased premier because not that he was a great guy but he was he's not Xi Jinping right so yeah, is there, it, that would seem to me that's something for the US to work with the worst thing in the world is talking about building up more ships and confronting China, and I mean, that part of Xi Jinping I agree with, which is you, you can't have a war. So if you can't have a war, then why not try and exploit the vulnerabilities that Xi Jinping has at home, as opposed to building up a military confrontation against him? I absolutely think, you know, the U.S. should be more welcoming to Chinese uh, students, Chinese immigrants. Um, I was a Chinese student who studied in the U.S. Now I'm a Chinese immigrant living in the U.S. I talk to, you know, they are my friends. They're my relatives. They're, I'm close to them. And the people are happy with Xi Jinping. And, uh, you know, um, people do see, you know, the U.S. is a, a country. Uh, the U.S., of course, has so many problems, right? But it's still a country that has fundamental freedoms. And uh, I think recently I feel very worried that the, the, the rhetoric coming from certain U.S. politicians you know, they try to ban Chinese students from coming to study in the U.S. They try to ban Chinese uh, people from somewhere, I think in Texas or some other state, trying to ban Chinese uh, people from, uh, you know, buying property. All those are very, you know, counterproductive uh, uh, things to do. Um, I think that the U.S. should be more welcoming to Chinese people. But in terms of reaching out to the Chinese people inside China itself, I mean, obviously, Trump was a disaster. He, he insulted the Chinese people by talking about the China virus and all this stuff. 
you've got to make a distinction between the Chinese people and the communist government, surely. Uh, I, I absolutely agree. I think, I mean, people are, a lot of people are happy with Xi Jinping. And obviously, she, you know, people are not responsible for the Communist Party's human rights abuses. You know, nobody agreed into the Xinjiang persecution, uh, you know, the crackdown in Hong Kong. It's the Communist Party. Um, so uh, I think this is, a, you know, uh, an obvious thing. The people are not responsible for the party's uh, actions. And uh, the, the U.S. Uh, government should be, you know, more welcoming to the Chinese people. So just in closing, then, Yacho, is there anything that's going to come out of this uh, meeting that is, it will be positive, apart from the fact that they are talking, and maybe they'll, the military on both sides will start talking to each other, which is, seems to me a basic necessity? Um, I mean, I agree. Talking is a good thing. I mean, you know, for the sake of war peace, right? Uh, but as I said, you know, the, the expectation should be low. As I mentioned at the very beginning, I see a lot of like people went to San Francisco to protest the Hong Kong activists, the Uyghurs and Tibetans and some Chinese activists are there. I think that is, that is a positive thing because people, you know, learn to organize themselves to express their dissent in a peaceful way. And that, you know, like there are also pro-CCP uh, Chinese diaspora there. I mean, whether you're pro-CCP, you're anti-CCP, you're all there, you know, practicing your freedom to protest. And I think that's, uh, to me, uh, is a positive thing. And I, I, I know some of the people who went to protest, you know, people feel a sense of, uh, uh, you know, community and shared solidarity, uh, a kind of empowerment from, you know, being able to do that in the U.S. Um, you know, it's a, a way of exercise uh, how to be an activist. Uh, so it being part of a community, I feel that is positive. Well, Yacho Wang, I thank you so much for joining us here today. Thank you for having me. And again, I've been speaking with Yacho Wang, who is the research director for China, Hong Kong, and Taiwan at Freedom House. Previously, she was the senior China researcher at Human Rights Watch and also worked on press freedom issues in China and other Asian countries for the Committee to Protect Journalists. And she has an article at the Los Angeles Times tough talk from Biden at APEC won't move Xi Jinping. Here's what will. We're going to take a brief station break and we'll be back discussing the breakdown of decorum as outbursts of schoolyard taunts and threats of violence in Congress come from representatives and senators. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Joanne Freeman, who is a professor of American history and of American studies at Yale University, who specializes in the politics and political culture of the revolutionary and early national periods of American history. Her books include Alexander Hamilton, Writings, Affairs of Honor, National Politics in the New Republic, and The Field of Blood, Congressional Violence in Antebellum America. Welcome to Background Briefing, Joanne Freeman. Thank you for having me. Well, thanks for joining us, uh, Joanne, and your scholarship, of course, and your writings 
indicate an era in which what's been happening recently uh, in the last few days in the Congress where a senator wanted to get into a fist fight with a witness and then the Freedom Caucus congressman claims that former Speaker McCarthy uh, elbowed him in the back. I guess that's pretty tame compared to what happened uh, prior to the Civil War. (laughs) Well, I suppose that that is indeed true. Um, There was a a lot of physical violence and even more than that, um, threats of physical violence in the House and Senate and actually within the Capitol in the 1830s, 1840s, and 1850s. And not surprisingly, a lot of it had to do with the issue of slavery. And of course, prior to that, of course, you had a, a duel, right, with Hamilton and Burr. Oh, well, certainly in uh, 1804, there was a duel in which the vice president of the United States killed the former secretary of the Treasury. That's true. But that would have gotten time, some that would have uh, gotten some headlines, I would think. Yes. <laughs> that would have definitely gotten some headlines. That that, that is true. Um, but, you know, in 1838, there was one congressman who actually killed another congressman in a duel. So um, unfortunately, and I suppose not surprisingly, there is a, a history of violence even on the highest levels of politics in the United States. So when did decorum arrive? I mean, one of the old adages is that the United States Senate is the most exclusive club in the world. Um, (laughs) But they're not behaving like elite uh, club members, are they? Well, not at this particular moment, no. And, and, you know, your question is is particularly good because sometimes what tamps down this kind of behavior, at least at times, is actual respect for the institution of Congress or for the Senate itself as the the higher body of the two branches of Congress. Um, You know, what we saw yesterday was not a great demonstration of respect for the institution of Congress. And, you know, again, when you look back at the 1830s or 1840s or 1850s, you see Southerners who are using threats of violence to silence people who are opposed to promoting slavery in any way in the future. And that, too, not exactly a great display of respect for the institution of Congress or for their opposition. So is there a connection between this collapse of decorum and this raw kind of partisan bitterness that's going on with the arrival of Donald Trump, who is an outspoken vulgarian. Well, certainly, you know, I I don't want to say that Donald Trump alone is responsible, but he certainly fuels it. You know, he's he's openly promoting and even celebrating in some ways violence. Um, it's in the air. It's in the rhetoric. It's it's being normalized to some degree in politics, and certainly Donald Trump is helping with that. And some of what we're seeing in a general way and what really burst out dramatically in one day on Capitol Hill is the fact that as, in a sense, you know, vulgar or shocking or um, unacceptable as the behavior that we saw yesterday was, to some degree, it represents a kind of political norm right now that shouldn't be a political norm right right now. And what's interesting is, you know, a lot of what was happening yesterday came from Republicans, which makes sense because the party is totally fractured. And so there's no 
party leadership to enforce discipline or to hold people back. Um, so that's certainly some of what we're seeing. But as far as I know, and hopefully I'm wrong, but I don't think any congressional Republican has stood up and said that that kind of behavior was unacceptable. And if they don't do that, they're suggesting that it's acceptable. Well, in terms of Donald Trump, though, I mean, his protégés are certainly causing a lot of friction, to put it mildly, in the Senate uh, with Tommy Tuberville, who's clearly a protégé of Donald Trump and was recruited by him, in fact, and Mark Wayne Mullen, the, the senator from Oklahoma, who tried to get into a fistfight yesterday before Bernie Sanders' committee with the, the witness who was the head of the Teamsters Union, He's also a MAGA Republican. So there is that, at least that connection. Oh, no, for sure. For sure. It, it's, I mean, I suppose what I would say is that the, the MAGA Republicans are leading the, the sort of surge or celebration, seeming celebration of violence. But the fact that non-MAGA Republicans are sitting back and, and really not saying anything about this as it happens um, – you know, silence in some ways is compliance. And so, yes, I do think it's it's Trump who's normalizing it, celebrating it, promoting it, encouraging it, not alone, but certainly he has a major influence on this. And then there's nothing, there, there's no breaks in the Republican Party, it would appear at this particular moment on that kind of behavior. So how long before the representatives of the MAGA movement in the Congress start echoing the kind of hatred uh, that Trump spewed out on his Veterans Day speech on Saturday, where he referred to his enemies as vermin, which led a lot of people to make the make the suggestion that Trump was channeling Adolf Hitler. Right. Well, I suppose what I'm looking at most closely right now is less, when it comes to Congress, less rhetoric and more action. Um, I want to see how people behave. I want to see how the dynamics are working. I want to see the degree to which, to be blunt, Republicans are willing to abide by rules and norms and standards within the institution of Congress. Um, bad rhetoric, the sort of rhetoric that Donald Trump is now demonstrating, calling his opponents vermin, is offensive and unacceptable and dangerous and really ominous. Um, if it's echoed in Congress, that will be all of those things as well. The question beyond that then is, what does that mean for the ways in which Republicans can or cannot in any way converse with, work with, discuss with, or really be in the same institution as Democrats? Because part of what we're seeing right now, and it's not just Congress, it's been part of what happened during the Trump administration is really the erosion of respect for a lot of different national political institutions. And this feels like more of that pattern, too. But at a personal level, it wasn't that long ago that senators were best friends with their opposing party members. For example, Teddy Kennedy was very close friends with Orrin Hatch, a conservative Republican. So had, they had a liberal Democrat and a conservative Republican who became very close friends. I think Orrin Hatch actually helped Teddy Kennedy get over his addiction problems. John Kerry's best friend in the Senate was a Republican, uh, Heinz, who died in a plane crash, and Kerry subsequently married his widow. What happened to that fact that they used to be friends, they used to go to each other's 
homes and for barbecues. You know, it's almost hard to imagine that happening. It is hard to imagine it happening today. But that wasn't so long ago. No, it wasn't. And initially, when people first started pointing out that difference, one of the things that they pointed out is that members of Congress now spend so little time in Washington and so much more time back home that there's less time for people to mingle socially and get to know each other in that way. Um, But I think more than that, you know, we saw it recently in the struggle to get a speaker in the House. There is not only an unwillingness to talk across the aisle on the part of the Republicans, but the suggestion that doing so will get you primaried, (laughs) will get you punished, will get you threatened. So if you're in a climate where really what's supposed to be one of the fundamental dynamics in Congress, in any legislature, which is debate and compromise, if that's seemingly being deemed impossible and even traitorous to your party, that's that's a pretty sorry and dangerous state of affairs. And as you're suggesting, that's not a climate in which anyone is going to feel free and comfortable having friendly relations with someone across the aisle, particularly, as I said, um, because a lot of this um, angst and a lot of this anger and hostility and a lot of the line drawing is coming from the right. And is there an element of going back to Ronald Reagan's his accusation that government was the problem, not the solution? The anti-government rhetoric, is that in any way connected? I mean, shrinking the government down to the sides where you could drown it in the bathtub, it seems like hyperbole, but it's also <laughs> a violent act, is it not? <laughs> It is, but it no longer really represents what the Republican Party or certainly part of the Republican Party is doing. They, they traditionally, you're right, were the party of small government, but we're, what we're seeing a lot on the state level is quite the opposite, that they want to having government step up and banning things and promoting uh, banning actions, you know, abortion, books, any number of other things, that, that government is weighing in in a variety of ways that really – represent big government, not small government. So you're right that, you know, government being the problem is a is a problematic idea and it had a big influence for quite some time. But I don't think right now that that idea is what's leading the Republican Party. So is it alienation from government itself? I mean, what was January the 6th, but a grotesque and dramatic example of complete alienation from the government. I mean, it, it's obviously very much in the, the Freedom Caucus and the, and the MAGA Republican playbook. Those people that came to town were angry to the point where they trashed and defecated in the Congress itself. And also on the left in this country, there's a lot of alienation about the government and away from the government. So what explains that? Is that also a part of these? And we're talking about so many different trends here uh, right. in, the, in the recent era. Right. Well, I mean, certainly there is some alienation from government generally, and you could say there's some on part of the left, and there's certainly a lot on the right. That's part of what's going on here. But I really think fundamentally it's bigger than that. It's partly, I don't, what do I want to call it? a lack of respect, a sort of scorning for these kinds of institutions that demand the at least idea of a we, of an us, of some kind of political or national community. We're really, you know, one of the things that the COVID epidemic exposed to me was that even when it came down to a life and death situation, we 
you know, the idea that there's an us and that we should protect each other was pretty much nowhere to be seen. So in a general sense, I think Americans and are thinking about themselves less than about a sort of national we. And I think that's hyper true on the right, which is talking very much about rights in a me kind of a way. And I demand these rights way and not so much in a here are the rights that we as Americans who have a democratic mode of governance that we share. I've been talking for a while with uh, in a variety of different venues about how we're having a crisis of we, W-E, that, that there isn't a kind of we that people share, not even within one party, the Republican Party. But I think some of that, the idea that really – I don't know what is binding us together as a people now, but it's not respect for government. It's not respect for democracy. It's it's I don't know what it is, but it's not those fundamental things, which it should be. Well, but we've gone from government being the problem or big government being the problem to now a hatred of government. And, right. and then in the Congress itself, a hatred of the members of the opposition. Right. And that's quite an alarming trend. It's very alarming. It's 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 othering the opposition as being unacceptable, as being um, basically having no merit. They don't deserve to be present. I mean, that gets us back to the vermin rhetoric, right? That you're you're subhuman. You're not proper Americans. You don't deserve to be here. That's not how democracy works, right? I mean, that's the most obvious thing to say, but I'll say it anyway, sure. right? In a democracy, you you abide by outcomes. You have contests and people win and people lose and you abide by outcomes according to a democratic system of free and fair electoral contests. And right now, none of those things, again, particularly on the right, are really being adhered to. And that's a huge problem. I mean, that that's striking at the root of democracy in a pretty fundamental way. But that goes back to Trump again with the stop to steal, the big lie that's metastasized yes. into a core belief amongst the Republicans, a majority of whom believe that Joe Biden is illegitimate. And if you think right. somebody's illegitimate and a, and a fraud and an imposter, that is, to some extent, is a license to, for violence, isn't it? Right. I think I do think that the, the idea of the big lie that that election was somehow illicit um, and it didn't matter, obviously, if there was proof of that, since again and again and again, there were attempts to have find proof of which there is none. Um, but that idea has fundamentally eroded um, faith in our electoral process to the point that, yeah, it, this is I don't want to say beyond a crisis point, but we're at a pretty severe crisis point, given that we have a presidential election coming and we can't even necessarily predict that both sides certainly or that the right will abide by whatever happens in that election, even if it let, let's say in the best of all possible circumstances, it's a free and fair election and there isn't messing with things or preventing people from voting or all of the different things we're seeing on a state level right now. Even in that case, will we see people who lose that election, particularly on the right, abide by that outcome? I don't know, but the fact that we have to ask that question is pretty dire. So just in closing then, Joanne Freeman, uh, how do you summon the better angels? Wow. Um, I wish I knew the answer to that question. You know, as a historian um, and as an American, I, 
you know, I think fundamentally people don't quite realize what it means to live in a democracy and they don't really understand what it means to lose a democracy. And I don't know how it is that we can teach that to people, but if people can understand that we're stronger together than we are in a, a vat of hate and opposition in which we're, you know, some of us are throwing others, as, as the young folks say today, under the bus, um, I don't know. I don't know how we can move forward. But that's the, the, the better angels are sort of grounded on standing on that basic understanding and belief which is that we are a nation, a democracy, a democratic government, and that it's that democracy, it's democratic ideals that have gotten us this far as much as we haven't always lived up to them, and we have to continue to try and live up to them or really fundamentally become something that I think most of us will not like us to be. Well, Joanne Freeman, I thank you so much for joining us here today. Thanks very much. And again, I've been speaking with Joanne Freeman, who's a professor of American history and of American studies at Yale University, who specializes in the politics of political culture of the revolutionary and early national periods of American history. Her books include Alexander Hamilton, Writings, Affairs of Honor, National Politics in the New Republic, and The Field of Blood, Congressional Violence in Antebellum America. We're going to take a restation break and back examining why America has an appetite for disinformation and how the press should handle increasingly hateful and fascistic threats coming from Trump. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Danica Young, who is a professor of communication and political science at the University of Delaware. She's an award-winning scholar and teacher, a TED speaker, an improvisational comedian, and the author of Irony and Outrage, The Polarized Landscape of Rage, Fear, and Laughter in the United States. And her latest book just out is Wrong. How Media, Politics, and Identity Drive Our Appetite for Misinformation. Welcome to Background Briefing, Danigal Young. Thank you, Ian. Well, thanks for joining us. And what do you make of the current misinformation climate or the outrage in response to Donald Trump's Veterans Day speech at which he called his political enemies vermin, and that's created quite a backlash. And even the President of the United States, Joe Biden, weighed in on it. But I take it yeah. it's probably not resonating or perhaps even not being reported in right-wing media. So how is it working in terms of the appetite for misinformation that the people that support Donald Trump, and he is, after all, the Republican frontrunner, the head of one of the two major parties? Yeah, so what's interesting here is that what the event that you're talking about and the kind of incendiary comic comments that he made, which were really telltale signs of, of fascist rhetoric, um, you know, identifying groups of people as vermin and promising to sort of squash enemies and, and those kinds of things. What's interesting is that those comments themselves may not necessarily have included mis or disinformation 
in the sense that it was not a reference to a factually inaccurate piece of information. Obviously, it's dehumanizing language. It's referring to people as animals. But in terms of, you know, talking about a, a discrete fact that is empirically untrue, the kinds of rhetoric that he engages in invite his base and invite his followers to extrapolate on their emotions, on their feelings of social identity to themselves come to false conclusions. So the, the premise of my work is that while we need to be looking at myths and disinformation itself, of course, tracking it across social media, identifying it, finding ways to challenge it and slow people down. A lot of what drives people to be drawn to empirically false information stems from social identity. That is how we think of ourselves as members of a team. And to the extent that Trump continues to create these divisive groups, right, and make references to us and them, constantly reiterating this sense of outgroup threat, where the outgroup could be anything from, you know, immigrants to liberals to media. Um, that invites his followers to tap into that social identity and then based on their social and psychological motivations, come to conclusions that are themselves empirically false. But since uh, Trump lost the last election and refused to accept it, even though he knew he had lost, his stop the steal has become metastasized into a core belief amongst Republicans. So it is the centerpiece, if not the glue, that holds together his entire political comeback campaign to get his second term. You're absolutely right. And what I see in belief in the big lie is an example of the kinds of social psychological urges that really drive people to be attracted to misinformation. And so I write about the, our needs for comprehension, control, and community that often will attract us to information that is false. And in terms of the big lie, the, the big lie, that is the notion that, that the election of 2020 was stolen from Trump through either you know, fraud or, or faulty voting machines, all of which are unsubstantiated claims that have been disproven. All of those things are ways for Trump's followers to comprehend how Biden could have actually won. And that is, the answer is through cheating, right, in their mind. It also allows them some sense of control because it allows them to feel that they themselves were not the losers of the election, that they themselves were the winners. And so, therefore, there are things that they should and could do. Um, namely, on January 6, 2021, we saw that they could exercise control by storming the Capitol to try to stop the certification of the electoral vote. And in terms of a need for community, what you witness at some of the, these rallies and speeches and on conservative media is that there is a real sense of kinship between those people who have a, a shared sense of being wronged, of being robbed and being wronged. And in that, there is connection and a sense of social, social community. Well, now, of course, two of the big proponents uh, of the Stop the Steal uh, have recanted Jenna Ellis mm -hmm. and uh, Sidney Powell in their proffers in the case in Georgia. They've made it absolutely clear that uh, they were wrong, they've apologized, and they've explained 
the cynicism of Trump's people who, who basically said, we know he lost, it doesn't matter, we don't care, we're going to stay in power. So is that resonating? In other words, when you finally provide, I think, pretty uh, unequivocal truth uh, to rebut the big lie, does it resonate? Is there any traction? Well, we've, we've had unequivocal truth for years. We've had, you know, the court challenges that Trump lost. We've had other uh, people from within the Republican Party who have said, no, in my state, there, there, these things did not happen. There is no record of this fraud or of these, you know, voting systems, you know, swinging the election against Trump. Um, the difference is, as those things mount, I, I, it does seem, you know, in a rational world, would those things change some people's minds? We would hope so. However, it depends on how much of one's ego and identity is at stake. If you have been told that the liberals are going to take away your entire way of life as you know it, they're going to re-educate your children in ways that you find reprehensible. They're going to, you know, change public policy and, you know, we're going to hell in a handbasket. Then your, the, the sense of identity threat and the amount that you have at stake is probably too great for any discrete piece of information to then update your point of view on that particular belief. It's almost beside the point because it's about your own sense of who you are, and it's about an existential threat that you perceive is being posed to your entire way of life. But also, it, at its heart, surely, Danigal, is this hatred of the elites and the sense that they look down on Trump's people. I mean, I think, in a way, John McCain's choice of Sarah Palin opened the door to a lot of people you know, either either coming into politics, hadn't been in politics before, or basically deciding we're not going to vote for somebody that's educated and, and professional. We're going to vote for somebody that's just like us, and that's what we like about Sarah Palin, and that's what we like about Donald Trump, even though he's nothing like the people that vote for him. Is that something that happened? In other words, well, do you agree that this is a backlash against what is perceived as an elitist clique of the liberals who look down on us, and therefore we're going to get back at them. Oh, absolutely. I mean, what we have here is really classic authoritarian populist rhetoric. That is, you know, rhetoric that casts a divide between the the corrupt elites and the the good people. And the good people are the people who work with their hands, who have traditional values. The good people are usually framed as those who are, you know, white Christian working class people. Uh, if you recall, Sarah Palin, you know, talked about real Americans. And when she talked, when she referred to real Americans, she talked, talked about people from the heartland. That was code for those good people. Um, what we find here is that a lack of trust in elites, in institutions and in processes is correlated with support for those kinds of leaders. And a lack of trust is also at the heart of belief and misinformation and conspiracy theories, you know, which is quite intuitive, right? Because if you do not trust the people who are creating or delivering the information or doing the science or medicine, well, then you're not going to trust any of the information that comes from those institutions. So there's a, there's a real undercurrent here. I'll also say that 
I, I see the kind of rhetoric of populism and its focus on kind of gut and common sense and emotion, which is really kind of at the heart of populist rhetoric. I see it as likely strategic in some ways, because if you embrace the, the notion that the best way to come to truth is not through expertise and evidence, but it's through our gut and what we feel to be true, it is a very, very handy escape hatch when you encounter information that contradicts uh, your, what you want to believe to be true or what's good for your side. So if you don't need to if you don't need to acknowledge it because it violates your sense of common sense or intuition, well, then it's like a get out of jail free card. You don't even have to reckon with it at all. So does this go back to a piece in The Atlantic in 2016 uh, that said the press takes Trump literally, but not seriously. His supporters take him seriously, but not literally. And I think that that is exactly what we're still seeing today. I think, you know, I, I came across so, some amazing reporting from the New York Times from the 1920s and 30s when I was looking into fascist rhetoric and, and how fascists were, were covered uh, in the New York Times, namely with the rise of the Third Reich. And do you know when Hitler was giving speeches that were, you know, blatantly anti-Semitic and, and referring to, to Jews as vermin, you know, which – Sounds very familiar right now. The Times urged readers to consider Hitler's language as strategic, that it was almost like it was cynical, that, you know, does it sound awful? Yes, but it probably is just a strategic ploy to stir up public opinion in this way and to tap into anti-Semitic attitudes, almost suggesting that the policies that we would see under a, a Nazi party would not be as you know, horrific as what the, the rhetoric would imply. I just would really caution journalists against normalizing these kinds of statements, this kind of language, and calling it out for what it is and linking this kind of rhetoric to what we have seen through history. Well, of course, the Nazis sanitized, particularly Mein Kampf, for example, the U.S. English version of it was put out by the German-American Bund, and it got rid of all of the, the killing the Jews and all the stuff that, as again, you know, we should take these people seriously and it should take Trump seriously because he's saying what he's going to do and what kind of second term he's going to have and how he's going to basically round up his enemies. But in the case of Mein Kampf, of course, they sanitized that, and interestingly enough, the senator from out here in California, Alan Cranston, as a, as a young German student, translated Mein Kampf accurately and published hmm. an unauthorized version of it and was ultimately sued by, guess who? <laughs> Adolf Hitler. <laughs> wow. So, I did um, not know that story. That's yeah. a fascinating tale. So this is not just a problem with the capture of the Republican Party by... I don't want to get into adjectives describing Trumps, but somebody that's channeling Adolf Hitler. Isn't there a problem on, also on the Democratic side? Up to 20% of Democrats and now in some polls are going to vote for Robert Kennedy Jr., whose entire campaign seems to be based on conspiracy theories. Yeah, the, the, the literature on and the data on belief in misinformation and conspiracy theories makes it clear that 
it is not just something that one party engages in. In fact, we know that in 2016, when Hillary Clinton lost the election, that there were many Democrats who believed their own big lie in 2016 about why it is that Hillary Clinton lost. Um, so there, there's a lot of work that when people perceive that they are in a position of loss or status threat, they're more likely to believe in misinformation and conspiracy theories. So that is, that is absolutely true across both sides. What we do have right now, though, I would say is an asymmetry in the breadth and depth of belief in misinformation and conspiracy theories. It is significantly more likely in the U.S. context that Republicans believe information that is demonstrably false than do Democrats. There is an asymmetry in the supply of misinformation and conspiracy theories. Most of them favor the point of view of the right and not the left. So yes, well, you know, obviously when you're talking about someone like RFK Jr. and, you know, railing against corporations and pharmaceutical companies, those will tap into a liberal ethos. So we do see that, but I, I cannot, I cannot stress enough that this is an asymmetrical phenomenon in the U.S. right now. So just in the last couple of minutes, though, let's try and figure out is there any way to reverse this? Is it a problem mm -hmm. in terms of education in this country that kids are no longer taught civics or certainly critical thinking? Is there any way to reverse it at that at the root, if you will? Or mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. you're you're talking in your book wrong how media politics and identity drive our appetite for misinformation about demand side solutions. So um, quickly, mm -hmm. give mm -hmm. us a couple, if you will. Great. So when you talk about critical thinking, it's very that critical thinking is a very sticky wicket because sometimes when you teach people critical thinking, what you're teaching people is a lack of trust. And you have to be very careful with that because you'll throw the baby out with the bathwater. Uh, sometimes critical thinking is operationalized as I'm thinking really hard about this in ways that favor my pre-existing beliefs. <laughs> um, so what what I see is a very promising avenue especially when we look at the potential for integration in school curricula, is this concept of intellectual humility and actively open-minded thinking. And these are traits that deal with one's acknowledgement of the limits of their own knowledge and acknowledgement of the possibility they might be wrong. And in school, I, we really don't see this practiced a whole lot. Uh, my, my kids are teenagers now, and they've written many essays, persuasive essays, convincing people of things. Uh, I have yet to see an essay where they engage with the possibility they might be wrong. Uh, we also don't see intellectual humility valued or practiced in our media environment. You are penalized for changing your mind. You're penalized for saying, I'm not sure. I need to think about it. Uh, so these are things that we could practice and value uh, in our own lives and in our media system. I'll also say when it comes to social identity and the primacy of group identity in driving these processes, one of the problems in our media system is the nationalized focus of political information and political news. Everything is really focused on these social culture war issues at the national level when if we re-centered community and uh, civic identity within our local community, it would allow us to think about ourselves as political beings separate from those social and cultural war issues. So 
so to to do that, you know, what that would take is some more reinvestment in local journalism, which has been decimated in the United States. Uh, there's evidence that, you know, having robust, independent local news and local newspapers uh, can activate a civic identity among citizens that is far less likely to be partisan, but it's still as a member of democracy. Uh, we also can think about ways to reshuffle the deck and give the benefit of the doubt, because as much as our politics are polarized and as much as our, our political parties are quite distinct, even among citizens, we know that the caricatures of the left and the right are not necessarily borne out in the empirical data about Americans' policy positions. We are a lot more complex in terms of our policy positions than these caricatures would ever lead us to believe, which suggests that there, we should always make a seat at the table. We should always give the benefit of the doubt and have a conversation. But just in closing, is there any possibility of going back to the days of Walter Cronkite when there was a consensus in this country about what was real and what is true? Obviously, social media and people like Elon Musk are enemies of the truth and enemies of consensus. I don't know. I'm not sure exactly how to get there because there's a synergy right now between our fragmented media landscape and our divisive politics. And it, it's making a lot of people a lot of money and it's getting a lot of people a lot of power and it's mobilizing people quite well. I think that if individuals become aware of that and we start prioritizing democracy-centered media practices, I do think that there there may be a pathway forward, but it would need to... It would require a lot of imagination, a lot of creativity on the part of uh, a lot of very smart, democratically minded people. Well, Donegal Young, I thank you so much for joining us here today. Thank you so much, Ian. And again, I've been speaking with Danigal Young, who is a professor of communication and political science at the University of Delaware. She's an award-winning scholar and teacher, a TED speaker, an improvisational comedian, and the author of Irony and Outrage, The Polarized Landscape of Rage, Fear, and Laughter in the United States. And her latest book just out is Wrong, How Media, Politics, and Identity Drive Our Appetite for Misinformation. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon and assistant producer Evan Green to help us sustain this program into the future and ensure it remains free to all. Please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or publictruthmedia.org where you will find our non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you've missed any of today's programs or would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcast, and we encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media. And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family and colleagues. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing. Bye for now. The guy that lived next door in 305.